What is up, everyone? I hope you are doing well today. Uh, this is Rafael Garcia, and this is episode 116, I believe, of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us, joining me today so far. Shawan is running a little bit late, and he will be hopping on the show momentarily. And best believe he better hop on the show tonight because we have quite a bit to talk about. And um, I want to argue a pretty interesting um, Twitter conversation I saw with him this week, but I'm expecting him to get on because it should be a pretty good day, pretty good conversation. So either way, thank you for joining me. Uh, Today is Thursday, March 28th, and we have a lot to talk about. Um, We got a couple of events this weekend to cover. Um, We have some big news from uh, the last couple of weeks to cover because Shawan and I have not been on for the last I think two or three weeks. So yeah, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Let me um, resend Shawan the invite and see if I can get him in here, guys. Give me one second. One second, guys, get Schwan in on this show. So yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and jump on in while I wait for him to get settled and get in on this call. And I wanna let you know what we're covering today. So we are covering a bunch of fight announcements. There's been so many great fights announced uh, this week, a lot of them all on the same day. So we're gonna look at a lot of those announcements. We're going to talk about um, Conor McGregor because there's a couple of different things that we wanna cover there. Look back to the main event of UFC Fight Night 148 and look forward to UFC on ESPN2 just because we have quite a bit to cover. So let's go ahead and kind of start right off with some of these fight announcements that came about earlier this week. Uh, First and foremost, first and foremost, there were four big fights. Actually, well, there were four big fights that were announced. One, another one that was announced as well. We probably won't jump in on that one too much, but the four big ones I definitely want to cover where we have John Jones and Thiago Santos fighting at what well, UFC 239 we have John Jones and Thiago Santos actually on Schwanz in let me see if I can hold on one second so we have let's see let's see we have John Jones and Thiago Santos, Amanda Nunez and Holly Holm at UFC 239, I believe. Henry Cejudo versus Marlon Morales at UFC 238. And Tyron Woodley versus Robbie Lawler 2. I'm not sure when that fight is. I, I was not, I'm not too sure when that one is occurring, but that rematch is also happening as well. But those are four big matches in uh, four important weight classes, and they're pretty interesting for a couple of different reasons. 
and I am trying to get Shawan on so I can kind of talk about that because each one has their own tilt that makes me want to cover them a little bit differently. Let me see if I can get this guy in here right. So of course the first one we're going to cover is the Jones and Santos fight for the UFC light heavyweight title. Now, this one is is interesting to talk about. I'm going to let Shawan do the breakdown about the styles and what to kind of expect in this fight. But it's interesting to talk about because of the way it all kind of came about. Well, earlier this week, or actually a couple of hours before this fight was even announced, one, um, John Jones was tweeting about the potential of him fighting Stipe Miocic in, uh, Miocic in July. Stipe responded, and it looked like this was something that was going to happen. At least they were going to push for it. People were excited. People were talking about the potential of John Jones moving up to heavyweight, what that fight would mean for both men. But hours later, and I literally mean hours later, fight between Santos and Jones was announced. Now, that makes me think a couple of different things. A, what happened? Was that fight with Stipe ever really in the books? Was that ever something that was really planned? I wouldn't be surprised if that was something that was discussed at some point, but the fact that it was even mentioned gives me pause because I'm wondering if that was something that was really going to be set up. And you can't help but be a little bit upset at the matter because it's like you're getting teased here. Like you're getting teased with something that we all want. You know, like if we were a, chi if, if we were a child and someone offered us ice cream and they took it away at the last minute, that's exactly what happened here because I, while I am not hating on the Santos fight, I'm trying not to be a jerk about that fight because Santos has done a lot of work in the light heavyweight division. The idea of Jones moving up to heavyweight, fighting the former champion, and setting himself up for a potential fight against either Brock Lesnar or a third fight with Daniel Cormier is exactly what we want at this point in time. Because the fight with Santos, it doesn't it doesn't do much for Jones's legacy. He's basically it would be him. This is basically his second run through of the division, cleaning out the two hundred and five pound weight class. Let's see what's let's see who is currently ranked in that group. Let's see. Um, at 205, we have, oddly enough, Daniel Cormier is still ranked. He's the number one contender. You have Alexander Gustafsson. Jones just beat him. Thiago Santos is number three. Anthony Smith. Jones just beat him. You have Dominic Reyes, uh, Jam, Jam, Jambakovich, uh, Volkan Uzdemir, 
Corey Anderson, Elia Latifi, and Jimmy Manuel lining out the top 10. Glover Teixeira, GSP beat him. Oh, excuse me. Jones beat him. OSP, Jones beat him. Then you have Johnny Walker and Shogun. Jones beat him. And then Misha, uh, Misha Sukurnoff rounding out, rounding out the top 15. So when looking at that group, Santos is, of course, the only guy left for Jones to fight. Now, I'm not, I don't, I'm not totally familiar with Santos's resume off the top of my head, so let me pull that up real quick. Let's see. So Thiago Santos is on a four-fight win streak with wins against Kevin Holland, Eric Anders, Jimmy Manoa, Jan Bukovic. So he has wins over one, two, three, three ranked opponents. He's, man, he's, he lost to Nate Marquardt back in 2016. That's interesting. But he's been with the UFC since 2013 and has been on a pretty interesting run. Losing to Cesar Ferreira, Uriah Hall, Gegard Mousasi, Eric Spicy, and David Branch. Um, no, excuse me, he locked out Nate Marquardt in my five. I read that incorrectly. But his move to 205 against Eric Anders in 2018, he's done put on a three fight win streak. And Anders is not ranked at, um, he actually fights at middleweight. That was a last minute, that was a, a last minute fight for him that I, I remember that fight. I think that was a stupid decision for him to take that fight, but that's neither here nor there. But the fact that um, Santos has beaten two top 10 ranked guys back to back is pretty important. So yes, I do see him as someone who could be considered a contender. Is he a contender right now? I don't, I don't think so. Just because of the fact that he is, um, he hasn't, I don't, he's, he hasn't done enough. Uh, he is in this position simply because there's no one else left in the division. And that is what makes me think that something happened with a fight, with that Stipe fight to kind of get this to fall off of the radar. Hold on one second. Let's see if Schwan can. Let me resend. So that's what makes me think that Santos wasn't the, the top guy for this fight. Because it just seems like it was made because something happened with Stipe. And if that is the case, I wonder what that situation was. Because for Stipe, it's clear that the UFC is not ready to put him back in a position to um, to fight for the heavyweight title. Like, There's no way um, that he's going to be slotted back in that group. What's up, Sean? How you doing there, sir? Not too bad. Yourself? I'm doing good. I'm doing good, man. Um, how's everything been? It's been a minute since we've been on together. Uh, crazy. <laughs> it's been hectic, man. But uh, you know, I miss doing the show with you. I, I, 
one of the highlights of my week is coming on here, talking about the sport with you, my man, Rafael Garcia. I mean, we got quite a bit to catch up on, man, but you're running a little bit late. So we're going to hop right into it, man. Let's talk to me about, uh, say that again, you're breaking up a little bit. I said, these kids are killing me. I believe it. I believe it, dude. I, I, I know you're probably getting ran wild right now. That's an understatement. But I'm almost working as hard as you are. That's how hard I'm working. Almost as hard as you are. I'm telling you, man, I'm trying to get to a point where that's not the case anymore. Well, when you do, we're going to hang out. So do me a favor, man. Turn off your um, camera so we can fix the, head off fix the bandwidth a little bit. But turn off your camera. And let's catch up a little bit, man, because I want to talk about these fight announcements that went down this last couple of days. John Jones and Thiago Santos. I've broken it down from a business standpoint. I think the reason why this fight was made was because something happened with the Stipe fight. Something must have fell through at the last moment. Um, but I want you to talk about this from a stylistic standpoint. Santos is number three in the in the division right now. He has wins over Jimmy Manoa, um, Jan Blakovich, and Eric Anders as a last minute replacement at two hundred five. Is this is it? Does he have that? Should we be concerned about a one punch knockout type of situation here, or is this a pretty much a, a fight that Jones's ability to game plan will see him through? Well, the biggest thing about this is he poses that one-punch danger, like you mentioned. That's why everybody wanted him to fight John Jones to fight Anthony Johnson. They want to know what it's like if he fought a guy where any mistake would get him basically killed in a fight. So this fight presents that threat. So the thing that really separates John Jones isn't so much his game planning. That's part of it, his IQ, his length, but it's really his durability. John Jones has been known to take a tremendous shot from guys who are big hitters. He's taking clean head kicks. He's taking punches from D.C., and I know it was a light heavyweight, but that's the same D.C. who knocked out Stipe and knocked out another, a bunch of top light heavyweights. So the question becomes, can Santos put together enough shots to put Jones away? Because I don't think it'll be any one shot. It'll have to be a short combination, a series of shots. I don't think he's just going to land one big shot and knock Jones out. For one, Jones is pretty good at handling distance in between not so much with his footwork, with his long arms, his kicks, the very the variety of kicks he throws, and the way he pressures people, also what he uses as a line of defense is his ability to clinch. Because if you miss a shot on Jones and he gets his hands on you, it's elbows, it's knees, it's takedowns, and it's ground and pound. So he has two lines of defenses against that against Santos's striking power, and the last line of defense is his actual durability. Santos to me doesn't have the skill set to really beat Jones. He has athleticism. He has, some, he has some speed, he has some power, but essentially Jones should be able to defuse him because Jones can take a big shot and he's going to have to work to get that shot in. And I don't know that Santos works at a pace or has the technical skills to put himself in position to land the shots he needs to land against Jones. Jones kind of, he fights in a manner that addresses each opponent individually. And I expect him to be on his P's and Q's defensively against someone like Santos. And uh, it's not that Santos isn't a threat. Sorry about that. I was on mute. My bad, man. So um, let me ask you a question. Is, do you think that this is a fight that is a five-round kind of picking apart for 
uh, Jones, that's kind of how he did Anthony Smith, or do we see him kind of turn it on and get the finish here? It depends on what, what kind of mood Jones is, is, to be quite honest. I think I think Santos is a guy who fights in spots. And the thing is, when you when you explode in big spots, you usually gas out. You don't have the energy to fight that hard two, three rounds in a row, three, five rounds in a row. It's the same problem Anthony Johnson's, Johnson had. So it depends. Does Jones want to end the fight quickly, submit him, put him away? Or does Jones want to basically punish this guy for having the nerve to challenge him? Because n- nobody's going to make me believe differently against Anthony Smith. I think he could have taken Anthony Smith out. I think he chose to show his dominance by having an extended beating. Because Anthony Smith was known as a guy who doesn't quit, always fights. He had to drag and put him out on his shield, carry him out on a stretcher. And essentially, even though Anthony John- Anthony Smith didn't quit, he, he, he stopped trying to win the fight because he couldn't do anything against Jones. So whatever your thing is, Jones tries to take it away and expose you in a manner that not just harms you physically, but exposes you mentally and emotionally. You say you're a tough guy, he's going to break you down. You say you're a grinder, he's going to wear you out. You say you're a knockout puncher who's going to be killed or be killed, then Jones is going to kill you. So it just depends on what kind of mood he's in and how he wants to approach it. The main thing he just has to do is be very careful because in those spots, Santos is incredibly dangerous. But one thing nobody will tell you is Santos is particularly defensively sound or offensively diverse. He's a guy who can be losing a fight and turn it around. Jones just isn't the type of guy to give up control once he's gotten it. So if he gets control of the fight, I fully expect it to go bad and go bad quickly for Santos. So let's talk about one of the aspects of this fight. I talked about it right before you kind of jumped on, where I'm sure you saw John Jones hinting at a possible fight against Stipe in July. Do you think that was the real fight they were trying to make and that something fell through? I can't, ima- I can't imagine that was a real fight because Stipe would have jumped at that, unless Jones didn't really want it. I-, I can't imagine how that fight would fall apart. If Jones really wanted that fight, you know, Stipe is going to take any big fight he can get because he, he he's basically been frozen out of the heavyweight division. So I can't imagine if they both wanted the fight, the fight did not happen. Say that part again. I said, I can't imagine that if they both wanted the fight, that the fight didn't happen. Jones is one of the few guys they can actually build pay-per-views around because they know he'll sell and he has a sort of, he has a certain appeal. Stipe wants a big fight. He won't take any fights with lesser opponents. So I don't know why he would turn it down. So if it was a serious fight, who would who would be turning this down? Jones really wanted it. The UFC's all for it. And Stipe, he's taking any big fight he can get. So I can't imagine he would turn it down. So I, I can't think it was a real fight. Yeah, it makes me wonder if something happened there because I my opinion is that maybe that was the fight that was originally kind of considered. But some I'm, I'm just under the assumption that something must have happened which caused them to make this bait and switch here. Yeah, I mean, it could have been. It would have been great for Stipe because Stipe needs – I mean, since he's gotten beat by D.C., have you really heard much about him? He's not in the news. He doesn't have any fights coming up. He's he's essentially almost a forgotten man in the in the mixed martial arts landscape. With Jones, Jones always has options, though, because Jones has been one of the few guys to sell. He He's still a guy who can sell. He still gets all sorts of crossover options. That's why I said that if, the fight, if he really wanted the fight, it's going to happen. Because they're trying to they're trying to develop stars or get stars who can maintain, and Jones is one of the few stars they have. So in, if he wants it, it, he can get that fight anytime he wants it. I can guarantee he can get that fight whenever he wants it. Because Steve Bay just doesn't have very many options. I think Jones is just being a jerk 
and kind of trolling people. I think he likes doing that. I think he likes flexing on people, and that's just another example of him doing it. Okay. All right. Some interesting thoughts there, man. So let's move on to the next fight, the co-main event on this same card, where we have Amanda Nunez and Holly Holm. Now, the first thing that came out when this fight was announced was a bunch of people moaning and groaning because Holly Holm, who was 5-4 and four in her UFC run, is people are calling her not deserving. And if you look at her record, okay, maybe she doesn't have the best record um, in as, as a top contender for any title. Yes, she's been put in some situations where they booked her in a fight just because they needed someone to fight. They needed someone with the name to uh, fight here. But there's a growing narrative that her style poses a threat to uh, Nunez. So what sh how should we look at this? Should we look at this fight as just a booking with a big name when they, that they needed for the women's um, division here? And, and, and let me note that this is at bantamweight, not at featherweight. Or does home really pose a serious threat based on the style matchup? Well, it's twofold. One, it is a big name because Nunez, Nunez history. She can't make history beating up Ashley Evan Smith. She can't beat make history beating up Betch Cohea, Irene, Irene Adonia. She needs a name. She needs someone who, who's achieved greatness so that she can beat them and assert her greatness. Misha Tate, one of the greatest women in the sport. Ronda Rousey, one of the greatest women in the sport. Cyborg, one of the greatest women in the sport. Now, Holly Holm hasn't been one of the greatest record-wise, but Holly Holm has the biggest upset in the history of mixed martial arts. No one gave, no one other than me and like three other people gave her a chance of beating Ronda Rousey. And she's been riding that win basically for the length of her UFC career. She got a fan base. She's familiar. And people still tune in to watch her fight. Now, I don't think based off wins and losses, maybe she deserves this fight. But the fact of the matter is she's been fighting only the top people. She fought. She lost to the current flyweight champion. She lost to, who else? She lost to Misha Tate, who was a Bantamweight champion at, for a time. She lost to Jermaine Durandamy, who was a top 10 Bantamweight and became the featherweight divi division champion. And all the fights she's been in, they weren't blowouts. She wasn't dominated. She wasn't crushed. She wasn't just knocked out and submitted. She was winning against Misha Tate. That was the last second submission that she pulled out. Against Valentina, she had her moments against Valentina. It, her fight was as competitive as Valentina's with Nunez. And against Jermaine, Jermaine Durandamy, that fight was even money. That fight actually could have gone to Ronda Rousey because Jermaine Durandamy hit her so many times after the bell. She could have had a point taken for that. So she very well could have been the featherweight champion. So it's not like she's been totally outclassed. So I, from that perspective, I could build a case for her having this fight. And she gave Chris Cyborg one of her tougher fights. It wasn't a back-and-forth fight, but it was a fight where Chris Cyborg looked human. She wasn't clearly dominating, clearly knocking her out. Even though I thought the fight was on was in Chris Cyborg's favor, it was a fight where you could find moments of success for Holly Holm. So I think Holly Holm. I mean, who else are you going to put in the division against her? Who else is Nunez going to sign up to fight against her? Who else has accomplished Holly Holm? Even if they're talking about wins and losses, who's fought a better level of opposition than Holly Holm in the bantamweight division? I mean, you're not you're not lying there at all. Let me ask you this: um, If I was watching the MMA beat today, and I think Brian Campbell was the guy's name, he flat out mentioned that he believes um, that Holly Holm is going to be a champion again at some point. Do you rock with that? Do you think she's going to be a champion again at some point in time? She's 37 years old. 
Um, many people think she'll be fighting until she's 40. How long do you see this going down, and, and do you think she'll actually become a champion before she's all said and done? Honestly, I think, like like people mentioned before, I think Holly Holm poses some problems that Amanda Nunes. I think she could beat Nunes. I think she could beat her at 45. I think she could beat her at 35. I really think that the thing that Nunes is, the biggest hold Nunes has is somebody who has a strategy, a smart strategy they can stick with, someone who's got enough athleticism that she can't overwhelm them, and someone who stylistically can put her in spots where she's going to have to work harder than she wants to hurt work. Ronda Rousey couldn't because Ronda Rousey goes forward. Nunes is a counterpuncher, aggressive counterpuncher, so she just walks into on Nunes' shot. Cyborg had a skill set in athleticism, but Sky Cyborg had no poise. The minute Cyborg got clipped by Nunes, she just started winging shots and got picked apart by Nunes. She had, as experienced as Cyborg is, that was, that was the worst possible reaction she could have had in that fight. She basically threw, gave that fight away. Home is durable. Home is one of the better athletes, one of the top, probably top three, four athletes in those weight divisions for women. Home is, even though I don't think she's a great technical striker, she's very seasoned, she's very experienced, and she's capable of executing a strategy, partly because she's durable enough and she's a good enough athlete. I think it's perfectly within reason that she could extend Amanda Nunes, make her work to find positions, make her work in a clinch, and attack her with long weapons, snap kick to the head, snap kick to the body, front kick to the body, feint, jab, and, and win a decision over Nunes. We haven't we haven't seen Nunes have to work to get to somebody. We haven't seen Nunes against somebody who's going to be disciplined and poised and not make themselves available for her to hit. As shaky as Holmes' defense can be, Home isn't stationary. Nunes is going to have to find her. Nunes is going to have to work. And Nunes isn't just going to get off of one or two shots. And she's not going to just feel the ragdoll, Holly. She's going to. So, Schwan, 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 before you go on, I want you to straighten out your um, connection because you're yeah. breaking up and you're, and you're going in and out. Okay, sorry about that. You got me? Yes. Okay. Basically, home style is to not be available for punishment. And it's interesting to see what's going to happen to Nunes when she has to work to get into the spot she wants to work in. And what's going to happen when she hits somebody and they don't go away. And what happens when she has to work hard one round to two to three rounds. If she slows a bit, if her defense gets sloppy a bit, home can end it and end it decisively. I think home was a very live dog in this fight. I personally am going to go for home in this fight. I think home beats her. And then they might have a rematch at featherweight, depending on how that goes. But I, I think it's very likely that home beats Nunes in this fight. I wouldn't be shocked at all if she does. Okay. So where would that place Holly Holm if she defeats Amanda Nunez when it comes to the all-time women's rankings? Well, if she beats Nunez, essentially, I mean, you wouldn't be able to put her at the top just because she's been show so shaky. She's basically lost against everybody else and only beaten champions or all-time greats. But if she beats Ron, if she beats Ronda Rousey and then beats Nunes, those those would be two of the bigger upsets in women's mixed martial arts. Because Nunes is on a run. Nunes has beaten every big name, and she crushed Cyborg. So the same cy same Cyborg who beat Holly Holm in a decision. So if Holly Holm turns around and knocks out or decisions Amanda Nunes, uh, you have to put her right back up there with one of the best fighters of all time because against the very best fighters of all time, she would be essentially 2-0. and 
And that'd be hard to argue. I mean, she wouldn't have earned it herself, but all the stuff, the momentum that Nunez got would be taken by Holly Holm. And then Holly being popular and, and familiar with the fans and the media, they would instantly push her higher than she actually is. So you would, I would fully expect to get a think piece saying how Holly Holm is the best female fighter of all time. Okay. All right. That's not, not, not the bad thoughts there. So the next question, next fight we want to look at is let's look at Tyron Woodley versus Robbie Lawler too first. I don't even know where this fight was booked for, but what are your thoughts about that fight there, man? Is this something that you want to see? Uh, and how big of a fight is this for the, there's so many different questions. How big of a fight is this for the welterweight division first and foremost? Um, I don't know. The welterweight division is in a kind of turmoil right now, so I don't know how big it is because Robbie's what lost the last couple of fights he's been in, and Tyron just came off a, a world championship loss and, where he looks awful. Um, I don't think this fight puts either one back in the title contention. I think they need another fight or two. Um, and honestly, if I'm Tyron, I don't know why he took this fight because he can't perform any better than he did against Lawler the first time. And if Lawler comes out actually boxing, using his jab and fainting and actually showing aggression and being locked in, this could be a really ugly fight for Tyron. Tyron's biggest advantage is he's explosive and he hits hard. But we've already seen if you're willing to jab and you can work your way into a clinch and, and you can attack the body, you can get to him. Rory McDonald laid that blueprint out years ago, and for some reason, nobody in mixed martial art decided to follow it. Usman did similar. He, yeah, he clinched him and he wrestled him, but what he did was he faked, he fainted, he jabbed his way in. And, Lawler, and Woodley had no answer for that. If you don't come right in on Woodley or, or you don't buy the bait, he said by setting himself on the fence and waiting for you to rush in, he doesn't have any answers. So Lawler is perfectly capable of using body positioning, upper body movement, jabs and fakes to control Woodley's aggression, to get him to the fence and to work him over. We know Woodley can't wrestle for five rounds. We know he can't fight at pace for five rounds. We know that Lawler can. The only question is, is Lawler going to be defensively sound enough to not get knocked out early in the fight? So this is a very risky fight for Woodley. If Woodley loses, that's two fights in a, two fights in a row, and he lost to Lawler, who hasn't looked like the world beater in years. I mean, if he loses this fight, he's he's out of contention for anything. I mean, if Lawler loses, it doesn't change anything. Out of out of contention, I don't think that the UFC has any intentions at all of putting him in a in in the title picture if he pulls out a the same type of win. Oh no, they've 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 screwed him with his fight. Even if he beats Lawler, well, you've already beat him. So what? And if he loses to him, it's disastrous. Because even though they don't plan on putting him back in the title mix. Now they can say, well, we can't possibly put you in. You just lost a Lawler, and he hasn't won in a fight in years. This is a very dangerous fight for Woodley. I mean, this they don't like him. He hasn't made himself popular with them, and now he's fighting a guy that the only the, the only performance can go down. His performance can only go down unless he knocks out Lawler with a first punch again. If he goes back and forth with him, Woodley lost a step. He went back and forth with a guy he killed two years ago. If he loses to him, then he got killed by a guy that he killed two years ago. So people are going to say Woodley's in decline. This is a dangerous fight for him, and it's a pointless fight for him. I have no idea why he's taking this. It does nothing for him, win or lose. Why um, didn't they rebook the fight with uh, Ben Askren for Robbie Lawler? I have no idea. 
Yeah, I assume because Askren didn't want it. Uh, that's the only thing I can think of. And to be quite honest, fighting Lawler, that's a waste of Askren's talents. Askren's a world-class um, annoying guy. He's an initiator. He's an instigator. And against somebody like Lawler, you're not going to get any quota. You can't use Askren's wit and his charm and his the kind of jackass nature he has in these sort of situations. You can't use that against against Lawler because Lawler's not going to say anything. Lawler's not going to do anything. He's just going to hang out and I'm here to fight and I'm here to win. That that doesn't that isn't that's a waste of Ben Askren's talents. You need him against somebody who can talk or somebody he can poke fun at or someone he doesn't respect so that you can get that side out of him that he actually can sell and that side out of him that will make people react to him. Right now, people don't really have a reaction to him other than the fact that they think that Robbie Lawler got robbed out of a fight. He needs someone he can play off of or somebody he can attack to kind of build up that heel. You're breaking up against Schmann. You're breaking up a little bit again. You there? Okay. Yeah, I'm here. Okay, so I don't. I didn't want to poke around in that fight too much, just because it's not it, to me. When I saw the fight announcement, um, it wasn't as interesting as the others. The one that stood out the most to me is this fight with Marlon Morales and uh, Henry Cejudo for the vacant bantamweight title. You know, I talked about last week. T.J. Dillashaw uh, vacated the belt due to a USADA violation that is being worked through. No new information has been presented about that, but. This fight is going to go down at UFC 238, I believe. And it's interesting hearing people talk about this. First and foremost, I personally do not think Cejudo should have been the individual booked for this fight. Why? He, um, yes, he started fighting at 135. Uh, he, his first fight in the UFC was at 135. But he's a flyweight champion. He has yet to defend, or he defended that title against TJ Dillashaw. It was a controversial finish. He has yet to defend that title against anyone uh, of note in that weight class. Uh, Joseph Benavidez is sitting there waiting. Benavidez has a win over Henry Cejudo. Uh, Omega fought uh, Cejudo to a very tough fight. So there's fights there for him to take at 125. Do you think the UFC made a mistake in booking him in this fight instead of Al Aljamain Sterling or uh, Pedro Munoz? I don't, I don't, as far as selling and having an angle to sell, no. Because um, Aljamain lost to this guy, so it's gonna hard. It's gonna be hard, hard to justify that fight because he got knocked out so decisively. Whether it was a fluke or whatever, the fact is he got knocked out very viciously on national TV. It's hard to build that fight back up because as good as Sterling's looked, he hasn't looked dominantly good. He hasn't looked like wow, he's been crushing all these guys, so he's on another level. He's ready for a rematch. He hasn't looked that good, and there's nobody else in the division. Who has any heat with him right now? Cejudo, even though he didn't fight at Bantamweight, he walked through the Bantamweight champion. And that's the problem the UFC created when they allowed TJ to drop down, keep his belt, and challenge for the, fly, challenge for the flyweight title. They created this problem because they exposed him and put him in a situation that he was capable of losing. And they, I guess the UFC just figured he wouldn't lose. And he did. So now they're forced. They, they basically have been forced to put Cejudo in a title fight. Even if TJ kept the belt, you were going to have you were going to be forced to have him fight Cejudo, fight Cejudo for the title. You know, there'd be no point in him going back to rematch him at flyweight. You got dusted at flyweight. Now it's time for you to put your belt on the line. So the UFC created this situation. Nobody else 
at Bantamweight has been able to touch TJ. Nobody's been able to show any chinks in TJ. And nobody's really made themselves stand out outside of Marias. So you have to have Cejudo in the fight. Even though it doesn't make sense weight-wise, it makes sense in the public's eyes. So uh, the UFC's basically painted themselves in the corner. They don't have a choice. They have to have this fight go the way it is. So... I agree with what you said there. Yes, um, Henry is a bigger name to sell this fight for the bantamweight division, which isn't a marquee group. Um, I don't. If Sally, I think it would have been very difficult to sell Morales against Sterling or M- M- Munoz, especially if they booked that fight as a main event. I think it sets up the winner of that to be in a very bad position from a promotional standpoint. Henry does bring some cachet that neither of those, none of those three men have. But from a booking standpoint, a lot of people are looking at Morales to win this fight. He's going to be a much bigger man because he is jacked at 135 and he cuts a lot of weight to get down there. How do you see this fight going uh, stylistically? Well, I mean... He's still done. He's a good finisher. He's big, big and strong. He's physical, and he's a dynamic athlete. But the fact of the matter is, it's it's going to be really hard for me to pick against Cejudo because whether you think Cejudo beat Demetrius Johnson or not, the fact of the matter is, Cejudo got dusted by Johnson in less than a round, and about a year and a half, two years later, he improved his performance by leaps and bounds. He was actually able to hold his own where it happened. He wasn't able to clearly outstrike him or outgrapple him. In rematches, DJ usually turns it up and has an even easier time with someone. Cejudo was the first time he fought somebody in a rematch, and he couldn't do what he wanted. In fact, he was the first time he fought anybody, and he couldn't really dictate the terms over the length of the fight. So Cejudo was clearly a very smart guy. He's clearly mentally tough, and he's clearly got a team around him that can set up a strategy based on his physical and technical skill sets that can handle one of the greatest minds, Matt Hume, and one of the greatest fighters, Demetrius Johnson of all time, and hold his own with them. And then even against TJ, he faced a guy who was a high-volume fighter, excellent condition, all-round striking, good defensive wrestling, and a guy who had grappling chops on the ground. And now, in hindsight, everybody can say, well, TJ was weight, weight, weight drained. Weight Schwann, you're breaking up, man. I don't know where you are, but try to get some to somewhere where you have a little bit of a better uh, connection. Yeah, let me see. Let me try it. Can you hear better now? Are you still breaking up a little bit? Yes. Now? Yes, now is better. Okay. Basically, everybody said, basically the, the biggest problem I see from Rise is I don't know that he can keep the pace with a guy who's as physical as Cejudo. I know Cejudo's smaller now, but he's a big he's a big flyweight, and he's not a bad-sized bantamweight, and he's competed at the weight class before. This isn't his first go-round. And I, I, I honestly think he's going to try to ground down Marais. I haven't seen him put together complete performances. He's had big spots of offense which have allowed him to dictate fights and take over control. I don't think Cejudo's the kind of guy you can just be a big spot offensive guy against. You have to make him fight all round long, and I don't think Marlon's capable of doing it. If he doesn't knock him out early, I completely see Cejudo wearing him down, 
with the wrestling early and then lighting him up with the striking late and, and finishing him. If if Marlon doesn't get him out there in the early in the first round, early in the second, first, second round, I see this fight going very badly for him. I don't think he can maintain the pace. And I don't think he's great against guys who don't fold when they start when they get hit. And I don't believe Cejudo is going to fold when he gets hit. Interesting thoughts there, man. Um, I'm leaning towards Morales myself, um, but that is definitely some interesting breakdowns there. Let's move on from here. We've talked about the four big fight announcements from this week, and let's kind of touch upon his Conor McGregor talk. Um, before we start anything, we have, to, we have to make sure we approach the allegations of sexual assault um, as, you know, he has not been – he's been arrested. He hasn't been formally charged. But there is an investigation going on in Ireland around um, accusations of sexual assault uh, involving Conor McGregor. If you have the opportunity to go read the New York Times piece, because it definitely breaks into a lot, a lot of details, not only about the situation, but about the uh, evidence, not the evidence, about the, um, the leaks about what occurred and how the, uh, Ir- the, the Irish media outlets are forced to cover the situation due to the very uh, easy litigious nature that they have there. So that's a very interesting piece to go check it out. But you have that, those accusations coming out on one side and on the other side, you have the situation developing with Conor McGregor claiming that he is retiring on Tuesday. That retirement tweet came out maybe like one to two hours before the New York Times dropped their piece. So there's a lot of different, a lot of different conversations going on around whether he did that to kind of circumvent the uh, the news about the allegations. If he did that in light of the allegations, or if he's just trying to play possum with the UFC and try to leverage them and get more money. Because if you haven't been following him over the last month or so, he's really been pushing for some type of stake of ownership within the UFC, especially now that the ESPN deal has been flourishing so much so that the UFC has kind of rebooked uh, or added on two years into this deal, only not even one whole quarter into the uh, the 2019 uh, plan. So, Schwan, let's talk about this from a couple of different ways first. Um, I don't want to talk about the allegations, as I mentioned, because he has not been charged or he has not been found guilty of anything yet. But how big of a blow is that? Is a simple um, is the New York Times piece to McGregor's cachet as a fighter and a persona? Uh, I mean, it's it's not a good look. It's it's very bad just because of some of the things. People have said about McGregor being entitled, being spoiled, being used to have his having his way. Uh, this kind of thing is the sort of thing that is the worst fear of anybody who deals with fighters or is against fighters in general. That you have these powerful people who are used to having their way, physically imposing themselves, and they get out of control and do these sort of things. It it, it kind of goes against his whole image. And it just makes you now you're gonna have people researching everything he's done or everything he's said over the years, and trying to pick it apart to see if there was some kind of sign that he was this kind of person. It, it's just, I mean, you, I hate to say it, but you'd almost ra- rather him have beaten somebody up because you could at least spin that, you could at least maybe justify that, you could sell that. But in a situation like this, it's just, it's just really awful. It's just really awful, and the and the deeper it goes into it. The, the worse it's going to hit his 
his his name and his ability to be a star and his ability to sell as a star. It's just in it's never a good thing, but in in the society we live in now, it's uh it's just awful and it it, it takes away any leverage and any power he really has until this gets resolved. So let's move on from there because I want to talk about it's interesting because I don't even know if I really want to talk about this because Floyd Mayweather has sexual no, he does not. He has he has just domestic violence. I don't even want to talk about this aspect anymore. Let's just know that this is a this is this should be taken very seriously, especially with the New York Times covering this matter, because that gives um, credence to all the allegations that we knew about months ago um this is serious and it's not going to go away at a snap of a snap of a of a finger at all let's talk nope. about the retirement piece let's say that again i say you're not buying your way out of this one nope let's talk about the retirement aspect of this i think he's angling for something um we know like the ufc is in a position now where they can do fine just without him if you look at Dana White's response, Dana White was quick to say, hey, peace out. It's like if you are trying to break up with a girlfriend who doesn't want to be with you anyway, as soon as you as soon as you try to start the conversation about breaking up, she's not going to fight for it. She's going to say peace out. Um, that's basically what's happening here right now, because Dana White had no qualms going on multiple media outlets and saying, yeah, we wish him the, we wish him the best in all future endeavors and sending him on his way. Does he have the bargaining power that he once had to force the hand of the UFC to allow him to even do a like a boxing match with, with Floyd Mayweather? I think his cachet has visibly dropped, and now he's in a position where he's not going to be able to strong arm them into a situation where he wins. Well, you you and I talked about this when they first did the, the ESPN deal. We were wondering how it was going to affect fighters because now it's guaranteed money. And instead of the UFC having to do all this advertisement, the ESPN is going to do all the advertisement. ESPN is going to take on all the costs. The UFC is getting guaranteed money as long as they put on these shows. It's not going to fluctuate. It's not going to go up and down unless they break some kind of record. It all just falls in their favor. So now the fighters have even less leverage because so what if you bring in a certain amount of people? We're guaranteed to get this money from ESPN. So we can come up with whatever card we want. We can have whatever kind of fights we want. We can put whoever we want on it. And we're going to get paid regardless. That means we can take our time finding the next star. We don't have to kowtow to any named fighter because we're, we know we're going to make at least this baseline of money, which means we can hold out until the next star comes along. We don't have to force it. We don't have to ride you. We don't have to beg and plead and tolerate you because we know we're getting paid either way. You know, it's like someone trying to fire you from a job when you know you're going to get paid regardless of whether you go to work or not. Well, we're gonna fire you, Raphael. Well, I still get my hundred thousand. Yeah. Well, I don't care. Or you have to work in this back office, or you have to. You don't care because you're still getting paid, and that's the position the UFC is in now. They're still going to get paid, regardless of the card they put out, regardless of the quality of the fight, regardless of who they put. They're getting their money, either way. The only people who aren't guaranteed to get their money is the fighters. The fighters have to fight to get their money, and they have to fight certain people to get their money, and they have to win fights to get bonuses and to re-up their contracts. UFC doesn't have to do anything but provide a product. So once again, the UFC went from being 85% in control to now they're basically 100% in control. And there's nothing any of the fighters can do about it because most of them aren't big enough stars. 
so have you heard about how much guaranteed money the UFC is making now? I think that they're in a position where individuals will not be able to leverage them as much as McGregor was able to do in the past. And um, there's the, the, the door is closing on these fighters, putting themselves in a position to push back against the UFC. And this ESPN deal is really doing a solid for the promotion because there's going to be so much more guaranteed money coming in to the to the company that the fighters will not have as much of an ability to say, hey, we want more of the pie. Do you think we're ever going to see a situation where the fighters are paid better or paid more substantially to what they bring into the company? I don't I, I want to say at some point they will, but one that would require all the fighters to get together and make a stand, which I don't think is going to happen. They don't, most of the time, they only care if they're getting paid. They talk, they complain. We've had this discussion before. They complain until the check clears. Once the check clears, they stop complaining. And secondly, the UFC, maybe if they have a star fighter that helps them exceed, exceed expectations, make even more money. But the way it is now, they're guaranteed to make this certain base, which is going to be above what they usually make. There's a stability that comes into it. They know every time they put on a show, they're getting this much. ESPN's taking care of this. ESPN's taking care of that. All we have to do is bring the fighters. And that guaranteed money is a safety net that makes them less likely to take chances. I don't have to take chances. I don't have to take risks. I don't have to risk making myself look bad by chasing you because I know I'm going to make this money anyway. And eventually another star is going to come along. That's the one thing that the UFC has that the fighters don't. Conor McGregor's career has has a time limit on it. George St. Pierre's career has a time limit. In it. Not just a time limit of how long they can fight, but a time limit as far as how long they're going to be elite. The UFC doesn't have a time limit. They've been around for 25 years. What fighter has been around for 25 years as an elite fighter? That's a good question. Yeah, there's no, there's no fighter. No fighter can outlast the UFC. So eventually, another per- person will come and be a star. They'll play ball early because they have to, and eventually they'll be- make a name. But the UFC has no inclination to push them any further than they have to because I'm still, I'm still getting paid regardless. I might make a little bit more with you, but if I don't have you, somebody else will come to take your place, and I'll still get, ma- I'll still make money. I mean, Connor has a little bit of leverage. But coming off a loss and not being a particularly active fighter, he doesn't have a whole lot. I mean, the time for him to pull this prank would have been two years ago if he never took a break from the UFC. But after taking a break and then signing the deal, he just doesn't have very much leverage. The time to pull this would have been at the peak of his powers about two years ago. And that time's already gone. He's got two losses, a knockout loss to Floyd and a submission loss to Khabib. He doesn't have the say he thinks he has. So, okay. I mean, I don't really want to kind of move on. I don't want to talk too much more about that there. So let's move on and talk about what happened in the main event of UFC Fight Night 148, where Stephen Thompson was laid the fuck out by Anthony Pettis off of a Superman punch off of the cage. What did you see here? Was because this this was that was not the outcome I was expecting to see. Is Thompson? Um, it, yeah, I'm expected. Well, that's weeks ago. Say that again. I said I said that weeks ago. I was like, anybody who's looking at this fight, Anthony Anthony's gonna get him. There's a good chance Anthony just knocks him out cold. And everybody laughed at me too, but it, it was just a it, it was an easy fight for me to see. 
um, the, the biggest thing with Thompson is Thompson has been in a lot of tough fights. I don't think his chin's ever been great. The hardest thing about getting to him is the distance he uses in that stand. It's hard to land a really good shot on him. It's hard to time him. It's hard to close that distance because most mixed martial artists, they don't have really good jabs. They don't really have good striking. They don't really have good footwork. So they might land one or two shots, but they can never put enough shots together to put them away. So basically you land one or two, but he's chopping away at you the whole time. He's going to win that. He's hitting you six or seven times. You're hitting them maybe once or twice. You're not doing the damage. And if you can't finish, he wins decision. But all of his defense is his distance and is his offense. is that lead leg. The only problem he had against Pettis is Pettis is a traditionally trained martial artist himself. So Pettis has better timing. Pettis has a better understanding of the movement and the techniques and the distance and the stance that he's using. So Pettis knows how to attack it much better than the average mixed martial artist. So all he did was chop at those legs, and he knew that he was going to get beat up. He knew he was going to take punishment because Wonder Boy has such great timing with his shots, even though he doesn't throw combinations. He throws great single shots with his hand. He's got that lead leg, spinning kicks, front kicks, side kicks, whatever you got to the body, to the leg, to the head, to the face. So he knew that he was going to take punishment. The only thing he was doing was chopping away at his legs to take away his base so that Wonder Boy couldn't spring in and spring out. So when he made that Superman punch, Wonder Boy's legs weren't there. He couldn't spring out. He, he tilted his head back. So basically his feet are off the ground. He's off, off balance, and he's leaning his head back. That's a knockout. That's a knockout in any sport, any combat sport there is. You can't have your feet off balance, have your head on the center line, have a guy flying at you, and you're trying to pull your head back that, in that position. There's no way. That's a guaranteed knockout. So basically Pettis just set him up. Pettis just set him up by attacking the legs and attacking the body, making sure he didn't have that safety in the range to move in and out freely. Any time once he realized that he couldn't move as freely as he wanted to, he recognized he recognized it and he just countered it and he just he just knocked him out. It, it's really simple. It was really smart, but it was really simple. So, do you think that there's a sustained run at 170 for Anthony Pettis, or was this just a one-time thing? He, if you match him right, he can have a sustained run. The worst part about this fight is you saw the best thing that Anthony Pettis is good at. He's an excellent, hard, powerful kicker, and he's a guy with dynamic offense in spot. Anthony Pettis has a great chin. If you don't get him out there, he's going to land a big shot at some point in the fight. He's done it in every fight he's been in. Landed a big kick, landed a big punch. He's going to have his moment to put you away. But the thing with Anthony Pettis is he can't put his shots together. He doesn't know how to box. He can't use a jab effectively, and his footwork is terrible. If he had good footwork, he wouldn't have got beaten up by Stephen Thompson the way he did. So he has all these flaws, and there's a gang of fighters at welterweight who can exploit those flaws much better than Wonder Boy can. The, so if you match him up right, you give him a uh, – what's that guy's name? Neil Magny, maybe? You can give him a Neil Magny. Um, I'm trying to think. Maybe a Gunnar Nelson. There's people you can find who can give him the opportunities he needs to win a fight. But the fact of the matter is his footwork's still bad. His defensive footwork's still bad. He's easy to hit. And against bigger, stronger wrestlers, there's a good chance he's going to get taken down and grounded and pounded. You match him right, he can he can go on a winning streak. But I think there's a lot more guys at welterweight who can beat him than guys who can't. I mean, he fights Rafael Desanos again, he probably loses. He fights Colby Covington, he probably loses. He won't fight Tyron Woodley. He won't fight Ben Askren. They train at the same place. But guys like Ponzinibbio, guys like that, there's a lot of guys who can get to him. And there's a lot of guys who I believe can beat him. 
he'll always have a chance because he's dynamic. But he's he's really flawed as a fighter, and he's not nearly as dynamic as he used to be. And his durability isn't what it used to be either. It so happens that Wonder Boy's on decline as well. He, he was able to exploit that. True, true. So, who what, what would you do next if you were uh, Anthony Pettis or part of his management team? Do you have him fight at one seventy again? Do you think he can sneak his way into the title picture really quickly? Or do you tell him to move back down? I tell him to take any big fight he can take, whether it's at 55 or at 170. If it's 55, he has the option of he has the option of like, let's say Gaethje wins his fight. That's a big fight that draws attention, that draws fans in. It's not, but the biggest fight he should be asking for, and the biggest fight this, I think this guy would accept. I say call out Conor McGregor, see if he unretires. You can fight him at 155, or you can fight him at 170. But it's He's coming off the biggest win of his career because he moved up a weight class, starts the former contender with one shot, even though most people thought he was done. Conor McGregor's coming off a loss. They both won a striking ma- They w- both won a striking battle. They both had tremendous KO, highlight reel KOs before. It's a perfect matchup, and it's a winnable fight for either one, either one person. I say Con- call out Conor. I mean, don't just ask for him. Don't just mention him. Call him out. Say, I want Conor. Conor, come back. Come to 170. You and me, let's fight it out. Okay, I'm not mad at, at that there. Um, let's look forward. Let's look at these fights coming up this weekend, man. We have a huge, huge fight that a lot of people are expecting to be like all all violence one-on-one fight between Edson Barbosa and Justin Gaethje. First question here, is this fight going all five rounds? I can't imagine. I doubt it. I, I doubt it. it. If it goes three, I'll be amazed. How do you see it going down? Um, I I figure Barboza is going to have some spots. But the biggest problem with Barboza is he can't fight off his back foot. He's not good at boxing as far as punching combinations. He's pretty much a guy who walks you into kicks. And if you respect his kicks and he can scare you off, he'll overwhelm you and he'll knock you out. But the fact of the matter is he does not like pressure. And even a guy who wasn't as good as an athlete as Gagey and Dan Hooker was able to pressure Edson Barboza in spots, was able to land volume on him in spots. He just took his foot off the gas and allowed Barboza to take control of the fight. And then once Barboza got control, he couldn't turn it around. Gagey is a pressure machine. He's a volume machine. He's a punishing fighter who fights at a very high pace. I fully expect him to engage in a firefight. I think he'll use his wrestling in clinches, time up. He might even try a takedown. But I, I think that Gaethje's going to do what Gaethje always does and break Barboza down and knocks him out. Now, there's a chance that Barboza can stop Gaethje because he's so dynamic, he's so versatile with his kicks, and he's so explosive with them. But the fact of the matter is if he does not get Gaethje out there early and he can't slow Gaethje down, he can't keep Gaethje off him, Gaethje's going to walk him down, and Gaethje's going to break him down, and Gaethje's going to beat him on the end of his life, and he's going to stop him. Barboza's not good with volume, he's not good with pressure, and he's not good when guys aren't scared of his power. Once guys aren't scared of his power, his defense, his offense, and his counters, they all fall apart. And Gaethje may not be what he used to be two years ago, but to stop Justin Gaethje, you have to walk through hell. And Barbosa just hasn't won fights when he's been forced to walk through hell. He hasn't. He did. He lost against Kevin. He get, he lost against uh, Kevin Lee. He lost against Khabib. He was getting the hell beat out of him by uh, on many occasions. He's just having to turn fights around. And I don't think he's going to be able to turn it around this time because Gaethje's not going to give him a second to breathe or a moment to relax. So 
I agree with you there. I think that that he is going to be fighting backwards off his back foot. I just don't see him being able to deal with that um, because Gagey just doesn't stop. And even if you crack him and leave him wobbling, he like you have to keep walloping him to get him out of there. And we don't see – we haven't seen that type of stopping violence from Edson in a while outside of the Dan Hooker fight. Like, let me – let me see something real quick. I'm wondering when his, other than the Dan Hooker fight, when was his last stoppage? So, like to take a lot of. Let's see. He stopped Dan Hooker. Well, he he okay. So he KO'd Benil Dariush in 2017, and before that, it had been three years before he had his last knockout, which was against Evan Dunham. And all of his knockouts tend to look like technical knockouts because they're more like overwhelming type of finishes. And I just don't see Justin getting finished that way. Yeah, to finish Justin that way, you have to put yourself in the line of fire. And that's that's the issue. Is he going to be willing to put himself in the line of fire to get that knockout? Justin Poirier was willing to, to do it. Eddie Alvarez was willing to do it. They took huge amounts of punishment. And Edson Barboza is the kind of guy that once he starts taking punishment – his skill and his will to distribute punishment tends to taper off. He starts running a little bit. He doesn't have really tight angles to get off the fence or get away from you. He doesn't really have parries or blocks. He just kind of kind of runs and hopes you run into a big spinning kick or a big kick to the body. And if that's what you're going to do is run from Gaethje, it's going to be very hard for you to finish him. And if Gaethje uses even a hint of wrestling in this, it's almost a lock for him. Because he's a great wrestler. He can take Barboza down. And if he can just force Barboza to defense off of a takedown defense, takedown attempt, then he can just light him up because Barboza's not great in the clinch either. There's just so many ways Barboza can lose this fight, and there's really only one or two ways that he can win it. And if Gaethje still is Justin Gaethje, I don't see how he loses this fight. Now, let me ask you this. This fight, what does this fight do from a raking standpoint? I don't. I think both of these men are kind of put in a holding pattern. This is the perfect fight for UFC to book to get people excited to get people want to see and get a great matchup fight of the year candidate on paper but neither one of these men will be moved a lot based on the outcome of this fight I mean Edson is six uh Gaethje is eight with Kevin Lee moving to welterweight the most I can see happening off of this fight is Edson if he wins moving up to five or if Justin wins, him and Edson flip-flopping positions. That's really the most I can see uh, from this outcome. Well, the main thing is Gaethje hasn't put two fights together. He hasn't won two fights in a row in his fight in time in the UFC. He's lost two fights in a row. He needs to show that he can not just put consistent, exciting performances together, but consistent winning performances together. Because the UFC wants to put Gaethje in title fights. They want to put him in high-profile fights but he's never been able to put together enough wins to justify it. He, he got in Eddie Alvarez, and he lost. Then he faced Poirier, and he lost. So he had to take a huge step back and face uh, – I forgot that tall guy's name. Uh, he works with Lloyd Irvin. I can't remember his name. But he knocked him out really quickly. So he needs to put another – he needs to put a win, two wins together. If he, be, he wins this fight, it's over a ranked guy – Given his style and his popularity, they'll give him a name. They'll give him somebody of merit to fight if he wins this fight. But he has to win this fight. He's put on, he's, he's been at what? He's fought four times in the UFC. He's had four great performances. 
but only two winning performances. And that's a problem. He's got to put wins together. And if he puts two wins together, the UFC is going to bend over backwards and put him in, him in position to get a big-name fight. I can guarantee you that. They want him in big-name fights. But does he But does he win those big-name fights? Um, I mean, to be quite honest, technically he's, he's probably not going to get a whole lot better because this is a style he's chosen and there's a price to pay for that. But on the flip side... The way he fights is always going to test guys. And if a guy isn't 100% on defensively or 100% on mentally, at any moment, they could break. So his fight's really uh, feast or famine kind of style. He's either going to wear you down and break you down, and you're going to quit and get finished, or he's going to make a mistake and be taken advantage of. Really, the only guy I could see really taking advantage of his skill set will be Dustin Poirier. Poirier's a tough matchup for him because of Poirier's boxing and his ability to fight a distance and his defense. And Max Holloway would be someone similar to that. I think somebody like Khabib could beat him, but Khabib being a head-on, face-forward guy, and given Justin Gaethje's wrestling pedigree and his ability to throw volume and pressure, I think he gives he could put Khabib in some bad spots as well. So Poirier's, Poirier and, and Holloway are probably the worst matchups for him. I, I, I'd also throw McGregor in there if McGregor's 100% on. McGregor would be a tough matchup for him. But outside of that, I, I think there's a lot of guys – ranked higher than him that he can be if put in the right circumstances. I can agree with you there. I, just, I think that his style doesn't translate and everyone knows how to kind of pick him apart. They know what they got to watch out for. And I think that that, that, that mm-hmm. will not service Justin very long, especially as he continues to take damage and rack up the, the violence fight as much as fans love him. You know, he can be the... Um, he can be the uh, all-violence king, but that doesn't get you championships in the UFC anymore. Well, technically speaking, he's he, he's I, I will say this: he's a little bit better defensively than people think. I know the high guard looks very clumsy and cavemanish, but he really doesn't get hit quite as clean as people think he does. Because people, guys in mixed martial arts, don't know how to punch around or through a guard. They hit the guard, and that gives him the timing and distance to counter. His leg kicks work because. Because they take away your base, so you're not throwing as much heat as you used to because your legs are gone. And the fact that he pressures a lot, a lot of guys aren't good off the back foot. Eddie Alvarez could back, box a little bit off the back foot. Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier, maybe Max Holloway. Most guys aren't good off the back foot. He exploits systematic weaknesses in most mixed martial artists. His style isn't technically difficult. The question is, are you will? He's like a he's like a truth machine. Are you willing to pay the price that it's going to take to beat him? You can beat him. He's easy to hit. He's easy to outposition. He's easy to outwork. But are you willing to pay the price? Are you going to pay the price to beat him? Or when he starts landing those leg kicks, are you going to stop throwing your jab? When he starts pressuring you, are you going to have the mental energy and the conditioning to spin off the cage over and over and over? Or are you going to start laying on the cage because you're tired? Are you going to start standing in front of him because you're tired? Are your shots going to start getting wider because you're just trying to load up to get him out of there because he's putting too much pressure on you? Anybody has the skills to beat him, but the question is, do they have the mentality? Are they willing to walk through fire? Most people will only go so far, and Justin Gaethje will go as far as he has to go to win. That's the difference. He'll constantly put himself in the line of fire to win, and most guys will stop at one point and say, that's enough, I'm not taking any more chances. They'll make, Like they say in football, they'll make a business decision. And against Justin Gaethje, you can't make business decisions. You have to go in there literally, like all those guys say, to kill, kill or be killed. That's what it takes to beat them. And not everybody's about that life in fighting. Even though they say they are, a lot of them really aren't. 
interesting, man. I like how you kind of broke that down there, sir. Um, the other fight, uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. The other fight I wanted to talk about, there's two others, Joss Emmett and Michael Johnson. Um, this is another fight where it's two guys who aren't pushing their way around the weight class, really. Uh, let's see. I don't even think uh, neither one of these guys are ranked right now. But it, no, excuse me. Josh Emmett is number 10. Talk to me about this fight. Is this really important fight we should be looking forward to? And what is at stake for both men? I don't know how Josh Emmett is ranked when he, the biggest fighter he beat was when he missed weight. It just doesn't make sense to me for one. Um, secondly, this has been a resurgence for Michael Johnson. Surprisingly, the guy who's been known to gas and uh, kind of blow his energy on big spots of offense at 55 is now shown an ability to fight with some composure, consistency, and consistent volume and activity at a lower weight class. The biggest issue against Emmett, to me, Emmett's not a particularly great fighter. He's the guy with good wrestling chops, and he's a guy who's a better, who's an attribute striker, who's got decent skill. Um, I really think the fight with, um, what's his name, Paul Feely? Uh, I forgot the guy's name. The other guy from Team Alpha Male that he fought. I, th I thought that was a tougher matchup than this fight as far as a guy with uh, a better all-around skill set, defensively, offensively, boxing, and has a better better resume as far as the quality of opposition. The thing that makes this dangerous, dangerous is that Emmett's a big, strong, power-punching guy. So some of the mistakes that Johnson tends to make could get him finished very quickly against Emmett. But if I think if he can get through some rough spots, I think he can systematically outbox, outstrike, and eventually outwrestle Emmett. It's just he's got to maintain, he's got to manage those spots when Emmett's dangerous early in the first round, early in the fir first couple rounds. If he can stick a jab on him, he can circle, he can feint him. You can, you can essentially control Emmett and extend him. And when he starts slowing down, you can take over the fight. I, I really believe that this is uh, Johnson's fight to lose unless he just comes out lazy and lets Emmett put him on early, put it on him early. All right, so I don't even want to kind of go back into that anymore. Let's talk about Michelle Waterson and Carolina Kowalskiewicz, which I think is probably the most valuable fight on the card because it keeps one of these two. I think one of these. I think UFC is doing all they can to keep these women in the title picture. Uh, break this fight down for me, man. I got. I have. I got an idea where you're gonna go, but break the fight down for me. Uh, it's really simple. Waterson's actually been on quite a streak. It's impressive. But I think her streak has been a lot more about fighting people who haven't been fighting the smartest fights and haven't had the broadest skill set. Um, so she's getting Carolina at the best time because Carolina's coming off a long, long bout of inactivity and she's coming off her first, and it was a brutal KO, KO loss to Andrade. But stylistically, Carolina's the worst matchup for Watterson. Watterson likes to control distance. So she can hit reactive takedowns. She can use that lead leg to keep keep you off her. She can move around the cage, out position you, and kind of fight at a pace she wants to fight. Where she can use her striking, she can use her speed, she can use her quickness um, to get takedowns and control you, or to just out slick you on the feet. Carolina is very durable. Carolina is very physical. Carolina throws a lot of volume, and Carolina is very physically strong, and she's not easily scared off. So she's a hundred percent. The question becomes, can Watterson scare her off with her power? Can Watterson put enough volume on her? Can Watterson use her 
distance and her footwork to stay away from Carolina long enough to win a three-round decision. And I, I'm going to say I don't think she can. Her defensive footwork isn't great. She's not hard to hit. Courtney Casey was getting to her. And Courtney Casey isn't, isn't aggressive or as good a striker as Kovacavich. I don't think Courtney Casey is, is durable. She can take a shot, but she doesn't like to take shots. Kovacavich is willing to walk through fire to get to somebody. And I'd say that Michelle Waterson is like a middle-class version of Rose Namajunas. If you take away the boxing and the overall dynamic grappling, She's kind of a lesser version of Rose Namajunas in the, in the loosest sense possible. And I still believe Rose right now would have a problem with Carolina. So I expect Waterson to make it a good fight because she is quicker. She does have the, the, mix, the traditional, mixed martial, traditional martial arts background. She's got the lead leg. She's got some quick kicks to the body and the head. She, she is an accomplished striker, but I don't think she has the horsepower nor the physical strength to keep Carolina off her to control her in clinches, and even if she does get a takedown, I don't know that she can control Caroline on the ground. And if Carolina gets her down, I don't think she has the grappling skill or the horsepower to get her off her. Now, she is the better grappler. She's been the more consistent grappler. But who has she been submitting? Who has she really been dominating on the ground? Other small fighters like Tisha Torres, other fighters who aren't particularly physical or dominating, like a Paige Van Zandt, that's not going to happen with Carolina. So if Carolina is 100%, I expect her to win this fight and win it going away. If she's not, which is why I think Michelle's taking this fight, because they think that Carolina might not be who she is, and the UFC thinks she might not be who she used to be, then if she's not who she used to be and she can't take a shot, Watterson will, take, Watterson will light her up early on the feet, Watterson will finish her on the ground. But if she can't get her respect on the feet, she's not getting taken down, she's not controlling her, she's not finishing her. It's, it's really going to tell us more about Carolina than it's going to tell us about Watterson. Watterson's pretty much been the same fighter she's going to be for the past, for the length of her UFC career. She she hasn't really gotten better. She hasn't really changed. So we're going to I'm find interested out in this Carolina. fight for a couple of different reasons. I'm interested to see, A, if how does Carolina recover after that drumming that Andrade gave her? Because that was a scary, scary knockout. And the way she reacted in the cage right afterwards – Oh man, that like that still was heartbreaking to me. So that's the first question I'm I'm, I'm look, looking forward to seeing. What does she look like coming off of a knockout like that? Because that is a knockout that almost changes someone. Yeah, I mean that that that's the biggest question. I mean, ask yourself this: If Carolina, let's just say she lost Andrade, but it wasn't by knockout, or or she was just coming off inactivity, she was just on the sidelines. Would you feel? Would you feel that? Watterson really has a chance against her if you hadn't seen this big loss, this reaction to this loss and the punishment she took in that loss. I mean, where where would you find the holes that Watterson could really exploit? My question in so then the answer to that would be in reference to um, if the 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 volume question that that you just brought up because I'm interested in how I'm interested in uh, excuse me, I'm interested in Watterson's movement and how that plays out um, in this fight because they're both the same size. I think their reach is, is along the same lines as well, too. Uh, you mentioned that Courtney Casey was getting to uh, Watterson. Yes, she was, but Courtney Casey's a lot bigger than both women. So I'm interested in seeing what um, what 
Watterson's movement looks like. And she also just came off a win over uh, Felice Herrick, who is also a much stronger fighter than both of these women, in my, like physically stronger, in my opinion. So it, it's interesting because like there's a lot of there's a lot of different aspects of this. And, I, and I'm also wondering if I wonder if Watterson has a game plan in place because she seems like a very smart fighter to me when she's able to when she's able to implement a game plan and she's not getting hit like steadily. Like the I think back to when Rose Namajunas stopped Watterson and the big moment came when that head kick that um, Namajunas landed that knocked her down because she was trying to back away and she was taking too many shots. If she can stay out of situations like that, I think she can do enough point scoring to win a three round, two out of three rounds. Oh, I, I fully believe she she has a skill set. The thing the thing that's always amazed me when she fought Paige Van Zandt, I picked Paige Van Zandt because I thought Paige was gonna fight typical Paige Van Zandt fight. I'm gonna pressure. I'm gonna get my hands on her. I'm gonna clinch her. I'm gonna throw volume. I'm gonna force her, her to get into exchanges with me. And then Paige decided she was gonna fight at a distance. I thought Felice Herrick would understand. I'm the bigger, stronger, more durable fighter. So I'm going to impose my will on her. Yeah, I'm going to use technique, but I'm not going to fight her at the range she won. I'm going to put my weight on her. I'm going to force her to defend takedowns. I'm going to get in clinches. I'm going to lean on her. Everybody who's fought Michelle recently has basically fought her the way, fought her in a way that has guaranteed her win. Courtney Casey threw volume, but she let she let Watterson off the hook. There's a lot of times where she wasn't throwing volume. A lot of times where she was just following her around. There's lots of times that she wasn't, instead of laying on her back looking for submissions, she wasn't trying to scramble or, or get on top to force Watterson to be on the defensive. She she kind of fought the fight that Watterson needed her to fight for her to win. And I'm not saying they didn't throw the fight, but Courtney Casey isn't a high IQ fighter. Nobody's going to tell me that Paige Van Zandt is considered a high IQ fighter. Tisha Torres is not considered a high IQ fighter. It seems like each one of these fighters had clear paths to victory, and they got away from it trying to do something else. Unless Carolina Kovacavich has been damaged by that knockout, I don't. And she does. If she does what she always does, it's a very hard fight for Watterson to win. It's hard to get those head kicks off when you're being forced back. It's hard to control range when you can't scare somebody off. It's hard to hold somebody down when they're not going to accept being held down. It, those things when 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 you face resistance, and this would be the first person who stylistically would 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 present problems. Courtney Casey wasn't going to present problems stylistically. Elise Herrick had the skills, but she fought the wrong fight. Paige Van Zandt didn't have the skills, but she had the physicality and the style. But once again, she chose to change her style. So with, I want to see what Michelle Watterson looks like when somebody's not allowing her to dictate range. But the one time she did, she faced someone who didn't let her dictate, someone who put some pressure on her, someone who threw hard shots at her, she got beat up pretty badly against Rose Namajunas. And when she landed against Rose, she wasn't backing Rose off. Rose Eight leg kicks, eight body kicks. Rose wasn't backing up, but every time Rose touched her, it was a different story. And every time Courtney Casey touched her, it was a different story. So my question is, can she hold up under three rounds of volume? Can she hold up under three rounds of getting leaned on and having to fight for position and fight for control? Could she submit Carolina? Yes. I don't know how she gets it down. She's not a great wrestler. She's not physically dominating. Could she hurt her? If Carolina's compromised, yes. But otherwise, I mean, Andrade had to land seven right hands in a row before she knocked her out. And Andrade and Michelle Watterson aren't anywhere in the same galaxy as far as punching power. So if Carolina's recovered, I, I don't see how she wins this fight easily because I don't believe she has the power or the wrestling skill to take the fight where she needs to take it or the power to keep the fight at the range she wants to keep. I'm not saying she can't. 
she might be much slicker than I think she is, but I haven't seen that slickness in four years. I saw Angela Magana give her problems. That's a concern for me. I've seen everybody who wants to hit her, hit her. And Carolina wants to hit her and wants to hit her bad. True, man. It's pretty interesting. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting to kind of break it down like that. I think Watterson is, is an interesting prospect. I mean, she's in her 30s. I think the UFC loves her. Um, and she, I think she has long-term value to the organization. And if she keeps winning and losing, they would love to get a title on her in some way, shape, or form. I doubt that they ever create the Adam Wake division for her. But um, I definitely do know that they want to keep her around in some shape or form as long as they possibly can. I think they picked this fight on purpose. I think they got Carolina at the best. Carolina is her most dangerous opponent stylistically, but she's also coming, like you said, off a knockout, a bad knockout loss. This is the best shot she's going to have at Carolina. If you would have told me this fight was happening six months before she, the, the KO loss, I, I don't think that anybody would pick Watterson, but that KO loss changed people's perspective a lot. Man, so that I that knockout was bad, dude. Like, yeah, that, bad. That, that, that's the question. That's the question we have now. It's the same question Aldo had when he lost to McGregor. Did he recover? Mentally, is he ruined? Because if he's not ruined, we know he beats the hell out of Frank Yeager. But if he is ruined, we know that this guy's going to mop the floor with him. But I, I think they've set up this fight with a purpose behind it. Well, I mean, he recovered quite well. Yeah, I mean, if, if she recovers, it, it should be a pretty decisive win for her. If she's compromised in any, way, any form or fashion and she can't fight the fight she needs to fight, then, yeah, Watterson's going to get another get another decision. If she can't push the pace and, and force the physicality on her, she's not going to beat her technically, but it's it's all based on what fight she fights. If she fights her normal fight, she wins. If she fights the Paige Van Zandt-Courtney Casey fight, well, then, we, we, then we'll pop, we're going to have Michelle Watterson challenging for the title next. That will happen. She beats Kovacavich, she will be in line for a title fight. They will push her to the... They will, they will shot put her to the front of the line. True. Nothing cares. They definitely push her out there. So um, what else are you looking forward to on, on this card? Uh, I I noticed the cards were a lot faster. I hate to say this, but I'm looking forward to the, the fast pace of the fight. It's nice not having a six-hour card on a nine-fight a nine card the last six hours. And four of those hours are commercials and highlights we've already seen. That's the best thing about being on ESPN. They just they seem to respect. I don't know if it's just how they do things. They seem to respect the fans' fight time and their attention and their patience a lot more than FS1 did. That that I'll watch any UFC card just because they keep moving, they keep it lively, and they keep the pacing better. That that alone makes me a fan of any ESPN product UFC that puts out. Definitely, man. Definitely. Um, the main card starts at damn seven p.m. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'll probably. I, it might. I think there's gonna be a lot, a lot of stoppages on these cards. I don't think it's gonna go the whole time, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it, it. I don't think it'll be. It, it won't be one o'clock in the morning like it was on FS1. So, anything before ten or eleven is good with me. Very good with me. Um, for myself, I just want to kind of put it out there. Uh, a very good friend of mine training partner i consider him my brother he is uh having his bellator debut tomorrow he is suni emotep um like the guy from the uh the scorpion king movies the um the, the mummy movies excuse me suni emotep is debuting 
on the Bellator card tomorrow. Um, he is the first fight of the evening, actually. So um, he's a pretty interesting prospect. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but uh, that should be a, a pretty good fight. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens there. And, you know, I'm just I'm proud of my boy, man. I'm, I'm very proud of him, and I'm sure I'm not sure if he'll he's actually going to come on the show after his fight. But um, I'm very proud of him, and I and I hope that he goes out there and does what we all know he can do tomorrow. Oh, that would be great, man! Congratulations to him. Please get him on the show. I would love to. This that's awesome, man. I'm really happy for your friend. I hope he hope he puts on the performance of a lifetime, dude. True, very true. What else are you working on for this week, man? Um, I've actually been working on. I've been working on these pieces, trying to organize these examples and from my experience in fights I've seen about whole issues that camps have in preparing fighters. So I've been working on three, two or three articles. I'm going to start releasing those. And then I'm going to do an article on Captain America. And uh, he's one of the few in the comic book movies. He uses a lot of boxing. So I'm going to use, I'm going to write an article about the specific boxing techniques he uses in throughout the four or five films he's been in. True. Oh, I'm looking forward to that, man. Um, as you know, I'm always covering mixed martial arts and uh, professional wrestling and um, stuff along those lines. I'm working on a piece about Conor McGregor and the power struggle that he's going through with the UFC. I hope to have that up uh, this week. Oh, I'll be interested to read that because it, 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 even though we don't talk, we don't like to get into it a lot. It's a very interesting dynamic that's going on here. And it's, even though a lot of fighters hate him, I kind of don't understand why they're against a guy who's on their side. Even if he's being selfish, he's a fighter. You're supposed to want the fighter to win. It's like when athletes go against other athletes. Oh, they're ripping off the owner. The owner's a billionaire. Why are you worried about the billionaire? Worry about the guy who even, I don't care if Connor's a hundred millionaire. A hundred million is less than a billion. I don't understand why fighters are so undercut each other. You're not wrong there. But, you know, who who am I? I? I'd rather see Dana get another 747 than see any fighter get over on the on the organization just because I don't like how he walks and talks. That, I mean, that, that logic is very backward. True, man. I'm not going to um, disagree with you there. So the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, um, let everybody know where they can find our work. Uh, you can find us on FM Player, YouTube, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Uh, we're glad to be back, guys. Keep supporting us. Like Rafi said, we're going to be having some very interesting interviews. Hopefully, we have his training partner come in and we can talk to him. Um, I've been trying to hijack and pressure Connor Rebush into coming on the show. The fans have spoken on Twitter. He will be appearing on here very soon. He will be appearing very soon. I've got the guarantee from the man himself. Good, good, good. So with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and close out. We will be back uh, next weekend to go back into mixed martial arts and talk a whole bunch of things about um, the fights from this weekend and look forward to uh, what's going on uh, in the rest of the week. All right, so you take it easy, man. No problem. Thank you, everybody, and have a great day.